Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, even as Ontario residents enter a third wave of COVID-19, the province is loosening restrictions on restaurants. As of Saturday, they're allowing outdoor dining for the regions in lockdown. Is this a smart decision as the numbers continue to rise? And it's official. Spectators from abroad will be barred from the postponed Tokyo Olympic Games in a few months. The numbers haven't been bad in Tokyo. Did they make the decision too soon? And efforts to enshrine the reality of climate change in the official Conservative Party policy have failed this weekend. Political science professor Daniel Bailan joins us to talk about that. It's all coming up. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. To begin with, some changes going on with the COVID protocol here in the province of Ontario. Uh, Even as Ontario enters a third wave of COVID-19 infections and even more contagious variants, the province is loosening restrictions on restaurants. The Ontario government wants to get the economy moving again, so it's allowing outdoor dining in Toronto and Peel region and is boosting restaurant capacity for other parts. Karen Rebo has the details. Toronto and neighbouring Peel will remain in the strictest grey lockdown category of Ontario's pandemic framework, but the region's restaurants are now able to offer services outside. Restaurants and bars in regions in the second strictest red category will be able to increase capacity to a maximum of 50 people indoors from 10, and restaurants operating in orange zones will be able to have 100 people indoors. Tables will be limited to members of the same household, except for individuals who live alone and caregivers, but it wasn't clear how that rule would be enforced. Karen Rebo, the Canadian Press, Toronto. So let's get a, a, an analysis of just where we are right now and, and what the ramifications of that may well be. Joining us is Dr. Timothy Sly. Dr. Sly is an epidemiologist and professor emeritus at the School of Population and Public Health at Ryerson University. Uh, doctor, thank you so much for the time. Glad you could be with us here today. It's my pleasure, Bill. Let me ask, I guess, maybe the most obvious question here. Are we going in the right direction here with these new moves by the government? Well, I tell you, I'm, I'm nervous, and most people in public health are sort of nervous about this, only because uh, it's, it's not a situation that we've had in the, up, to, up to now in the last few months. Uh, we've got, it, it's almost like the, the entering the third act of a three-act play. Virtually anything can happen. You know, the can, uh, protagonists and the antagonists are meeting each other at the, at, uh, finally in this great conflict. You've got the vaccine cavalry appearing over the horizon in one hand, and you've got the, the mutants appearing in the other hand. They're both streaming into the cities and the urban areas. Anything can happen, and uh, probably will. Uh, the, the, the point is that, that the, the, uh, the, if, if we begin to relax and get back to uh, uh, you know, meeting people and uh, having lunch on the patio and so on, along with that, there's got to be increased protection, increased precaution, you know, uh, making sure the mask works. And even double masking isn't a bad idea because these things are, these, these variants are particularly nasty. And, and therein lies the problem. I mean, it, it, I loved your analogy, by the way, uh, you know, because there's a new enemy right now. I mean, we really don't know about the variants. We don't even know about the efficacy of the vaccine with the variants. We're told it probably is going to be okay. But are we, are we taking it a little bit too much for granted now? Well, we're learning something almost every day, Bill, as you can imagine. What we now know is that with the variant that's in Canada mainly, it's the one that started off in England. It's a whole group, actually. We call it B117. And by a factor of about 30 times more than the next one in Canada, it's now roughly about 50% of the isolations of the virus in this country turn out to be this particular variant. And it's come up from uh, uh, virtually nothing uh, uh, two months ago. It wasn't even present here. 
and yet it's now up to about 50%. That shows you the, uh, the power of this thing to just take over, become the dominant strain. What we do know is that uh, it spreads far more efficiently, a factor of maybe 50 or 60%, not times, but percent better than the, the uh, previous one. We now know, as a result of a paper published in uh, Nature only about a week and a half ago, that it, it actually is um, more dangerous. It produces more serious illness, even more death uh, by a certain percentage. And there's a suspicion, a very strong suspicion, that it can evade, or as a proper word to be used, escapes the activities, the antibodies, because the antibodies are what protects us, either through having recovered from an infection or through having been vaccinated. The vaccines still work predominantly well, extraordinarily well, actually, but there is this hint that it can begin to escape the virus. So this is the reason, the, the result is we have to get most people vaccinated as soon as possible. And, well, we could talk at hour, for hours, I guess, about the efficacy of the vaccine rollout program. They seem to be getting it on track now. So let's, uh, I guess, small, you know, thank God for small victories in that situation. But just on a, on a theoretical basis, though, Doctor, as you described, uh, this thing spreads a lot faster than the other one. It could well be more serious and have more harmful effects on it. Uh, is, is it wise for us to be actually getting more people together then in, in, in proximity? I understand an awful lot of people say outdoor dining is not that much of a problem. But, you know, when you're that close, and even the indoor dining in a good deal of the province, are they going to start increasing the numbers? It sounds as if we're putting ourselves in a rather precarious position. I, I think you're hitting it on the head, Bill. Yeah, I mean, from a, if I, with my epi, epidemiology hat on, uh, I'm nervous, and I, I'd like to see, let's hold off. Let's hold off. I think... I, uh, if we held off for about another five weeks, we'd have a really good idea of which direction it's going in, and we probably have influenced uh, the thing into the right direction by that time. So by opening up now, and I realize that, that if you put on the other hat, my citizen's hat, I mean, I want to get out to restaurants as well. I'm aching to, for some of that really good you know, Italian food and so on. <laughs> but uh, But somehow we've got to face the fact that that we've got an unwanted visitor in with us, the means of controlling them is just about the same, only it's more intense. In other words, the mask works, but let's make sure the mask is a good quality mask. Doubling is, is probably a good idea. Distancing, yes, that still works about the same, but let's make sure that we don't infringe the distancing. And we've, got, we've really got six, or actually the seven, the seven C's of COVID, we call it, uh, the seven means of, of transmitting it. And once you sit in a restaurant, you're close to, you're close to your friends, uh, within a couple of feet usually. You've got the mask off because it's very difficult to eat spaghetti with a mask on. Uh, the noise in the background means you can speak louder with a louder voice, and that's another factor of uh, spreading the virus around from your throat. It spreads out faster if you're speaking loudly. Uh, you've got that act you're there for a longer period of time there's many many other people in the room the waiter is inside your your bubble uh, constantly throughout the evening you know on and on and on and on in other words the, the indoor dining is a is a, a bit of a, 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 a nervous position to be in outdoor dining I can see that you know a bit of a breeze even in the even in the evening time is not a bad idea uh, but indoors gets me a little bit worried. I think it's a bit too soon. 
And I, listen, I share your concern too. I'm, I'm, I got a long list of places I'd love to go, restaurants and other places, you know, that we've been missing out on for the last year. I, I share that. And I understand the economic impacts of both this too. And I'm sure the premier and his staff are getting an awful lot of pressure from that. Uh, but, but you've, uh, I think, characterized, uh, I think, a good deal of the concern here right now. And, and I'm looking at some of the restrictions here. Uh, for instance, they say, uh, uh, you can have more people on tables right now as long as it's limited to members of the same household. How in heaven's name are they going to enforce that? That's to me as if it was something that was put in so they could feel better about themselves about loosening the restrictions yeah it's called uh you know protecting your rear end i think to some degree Uh, i mean if i was a restaurant owner quite honestly i'd do everything humanly possible to protect my staff and my my customers and so on but am i really going to interrogate them at the door to say you know i want to see evidence that you're all living in the same household I mean, that, that's got negativity through it from beginning to end. I don't see that being a practical solution to anything. Um, I think as the weather becomes warmer, I mean, let, let's, who would have thought it would be a, a compliment to, to global warming to say, isn't it nice that we're seeing this early spring? <laughs> but uh, the fact is that maybe patios is the time to let, let's, let's see people on patios perhaps distancing or or plexiglass between tables that kind of thing is not a bad idea but but uh, cramming them all in there together now you know after after a glass of wine or two or a raisin of a, a beer or two we tend to forget a little bit about that distancing and the fact that you were supposed to be protecting your other people in the room and you're just enjoying yourself it's natural so there's a tendency there to see it slide down again and we don't want to see we are right now bill we're we're about 40 percent at the height of the peak of the second wave. You know, we were in that big second wave back in... Uh, where, where about where we are in, in uh, November? It's that first week of November, right oh, now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. About 40% as high as that, that peak was. And let me tell you that in 1918, uh, their first wave was bad. Their second wave was, was catastrophic. And they got over it, and they said, we finished, we've conquered this beast, let's get back to work, big sigh of relief. And then the third wave hit. It wasn't as high as the second one, but moral, but but psychologically, it was brutal. They just weren't w- w- prepared for another onslaught of uh, death and uh, loss of family members again. And we're we're moving up. We're we're into that wave now. We just don't know how high it's going to be. So let's try to keep the foot on that brake for a little while. Well, and I guess the question for a lot of us then, Doctor, is going to be, well, just how far do we go? I, I, there's a story. That kind of caught my interest last week. There was a, I guess, a breakout that they found in a restaurant. I think it was in the GTA, in fact. Uh, and then they said we're having trouble now because we can't really find out exactly who was in the restaurant. I said, well, you're supposed to sign in when you do that. When you, that's contact tracing. So obviously they dropped the ball there. They were not doing that. And I, I'm getting the sense we're seeing a lot of that now, where people are, as you say, relaxing the things that they're supposed to be doing right now. I know I'm only supposed to let 50 people in, but you know what's five or six more stuff like that. I'll wear the mask, but I'm not going to cover my nose. Uh, and, and and when we increase the numbers like that, I'm I'm just concerned about what this is going to do right now. Uh, I, I agree with you. I don't think anybody is ready for a third wave. I think we're all, as you say, pandemic fatigued at this stage. But if we let our guard down, you know, I'm, I'm concerned about the consequences. Yeah, you're right. Uh, the the uh, We're looking at those daily numbers and then smoothing them out with uh, seven seven-day averages. And it's certainly going up. It's not quite as steep a slur, slope as it was back in November, but we're heading up that similar mountain, that sort of echo of a mountain. 
we don't want to see that happen. It's it's a great shame. I mean, I, you know, we, we we want to see things back. Everybody's fatigued about this, but now we see that fatigue manifesting. And look at London, a big demonstration last few days, really big demonstration. People saying, you know, you know, you're not going to tell me what to do. I this is my freedom to to do whatever I want to do. And this is a sort of selfishness, selfish process. It's not really protecting. Uh, it's not really them deciding if they're going to be protected. They should be thinking about protecting other people. Remember that 40 to 50 percent of the people who have the virus do not have any signs or symptoms that they've got it. And that's worrying. We've never seen a disease like this before, ever. And so we need to know where... The, so the solution to that particular slice of the, of the horrible pie is testing. And somehow the federal government purchased something like 38 million rapid tests. And as far as I know, 90... Five point something percent of them are still in warehouses, something they've never been used. Now, the, the argument is, well, they're not as sensitive as the PCR test. That's true. But if you give the same test twice to the same person, say within five, seven days, you've got about the same screening coverage as a PCR test, about 99%. Why aren't they being used in this particular case? Wait staff, restaurant staff, uh, uh, taxis, limousines, airport, uh, you know, uh, attendants and so on could all be tested like this. Summer camp people, what a wonderful way to do that. Everybody goes to summer camp, staff uh, and uh, the counselors and everybody gets tested twice before they get on there, once a week before, one the day before, and you know you're pretty much, you don't have a virus in the summer camp. I mean, this would open up so many doors, but for some reason we're reluctant to use the testing. Are we falling behind other countries, other jurisdictions, though, Doctor, by being a little slack in this? Uh, because we're hearing, as you mentioned, uh, well, Israel comes to mind, a number of other countries right now that are far more restrictive about this uh, to shut this thing down. We already know that the vaccine passport uh, is, is something that's being discussed among the G7 nations. Whether Canada wants to do it or not, they're going to be forced into it if everyone else is doing it. Uh, so, you know, they seem to be have the, the, the fortitude and the, and the wherewithal to say, no, we're going to stick with this. Now, some of your colleagues even here are saying we should probably have another lockdown for two or three weeks just to, to try to get a handle on this. Uh, I don't get the sense the government has the appetite for that, but uh, I'm not so sure that the tack they've taken here is actually going to be the solution either. Is there a middle ground here, or should we go to that extreme again? Well, uh, I think I think you're, you're zeroing in on this pretty closely. I mean, we are way behind most of the other nations in terms of even the vaccine vaccination. We are now at about 6% of the population have had some, some, not the full vaccination. Full vaccination, the double dose, it's about 1.5%. Uh, have had any kind of vaccination so far, about 6%. The United States, which you may remember, was the raging dumpster fire example of how not to run a pandemic a few months ago. They're about 24 or 23% of the population have been vaccinated. Israel, as you said, is, is about 100%, uh, very close to it. And many other countries who were doing really poorly earlier on are way up. UK is on 50% of its adult population have been vaccinated. We are 6% with some form of vaccination. So we're way behind the game. And with time, as we mentioned with our analogy with the, the variants or mutants, as I call them, coming in, uh, time is of the essence here. And we're starting off. 
uh, not having heard the, the, the starter's gun go off, and we've sort of been still gazing around the room when, when, waiting to start. I'm a, I'm a, in, I was around in 2003, of course, with SARS-1. Mm-hmm. And if you go back and look at the report written by Justice Archie Campbell in 2006, the post-mortem of that particular thing, he said, we made so many errors in Ontario. And if we ever have another health crisis, uh, crisis again, let's hope we don't make these, I think he listed seven or eight different errors. And if you go back and look at that, we're making almost the same errors again uh, this time around, including such things as, as hesitating to bring in uh, screening and testing and so on until we're absolutely sure it's 100%. By that time, it's too late. And failing to have personal protective equipment. Apparently, we had all kinds of PPE left over and in stores and warehouses. And somebody must have said to somebody a few years ago, oh, look at all this PPE stuff. It's all expired. How a mask expires is yet is yet to be, uh, be convinced uh, that it can even happen. Anyway, they threw it out and didn't replace it. I mean, this kind of... Uh, uh, we have a thing in environmental risk assessment called NIMBY, as you know, not in my mm-hmm. backyard. Yeah. In, in this kind of health assessment, it, we, I have a thing called it uh, not in to- my term of office. It's NIMTOF. <laughs> so as long as they can't see it in their next five, four or five years, it hasn't happened, and forget about it. It's just do away with it. It's a great shame. I think we should. Uh, I just hope that we learn something from this before the next one, and there will be a next one, there's no question. We've had three coronaviruses uh, events in the last uh, 20 years, and there'll be more. Well, as the saying goes, those who don't learn from history, and I think everybody knows the rest of that one. Doctor, always great to get your perspective. Thanks so much for spending some time with us. I really appreciate it. Carry on doing the good work, Bill. Bye-bye. Thank, thank you, sir. Dr. Timothy Sly, of course, from uh, Ryerson University. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. What if they put on an Olympic Games and nobody came? Well, I guess more appropriately, not too many people came. Julie Walker's got some details. Listen to this. The decision was announced Saturday. Officials say the risk is too great to admit ticket holders from overseas because of the coronavirus. The Japanese public has also opposed fans from abroad. IOC President Thomas Bach called it a difficult decision. Decisions uh, which uh, may uh, you know, need uh, sacrifice from, uh, from uh, uh, everybody. Organizers say 600,000 tickets were sold to fans from outside Japan and have promised refunds, but this will be determined by resellers that charge fees. It's not clear if those fees will be refunded. The Tokyo Olympics were canceled last year because of COVID. I'm Julie Walker. So what are the implications of this? Uh, we're so pleased to welcome to the program uh, to talk about this, Marnie McBean. Marnie, of course, is a Team Canada's Tokyo 2020 chef de mission and the also, as you may recall, a three-time Olympic gold medalist in the 92 Games. Marnie, a pleasure, pleasure to welcome you to the program. Thanks so much for spending some time with us today. Oh, thanks, Bill. Thanks for having me. Are you surprised by the decision? Uh, sadly, no, I'm not. I think people who've been watching this and and you're know, looking at everything that had to be put in place for Japan um, and for Tokyo to hold a, a safe game. Uh, there were some indicators leading this way for many months. Did they make the decision too soon? I mean, there's four months to go here. And mm-hmm. uh, just to put this in context, and, and I know everybody's dealing with the pandemic now, but Japan has done a pretty decent job of controlling the pandemic uh, so far anyway. And I think a lot of people were th- kind of hoping that, well, maybe, maybe we can have some flexibility here. But I guess they decided not to. Yeah. Truthfully, uh, Japan's done a, 
an amazing job of everything. Like over a year ago, we, we were like, this was going to be the easy games because everything was ready. Everything was organized, you know, with Japanese uh, structure um, and thoroughness has, has played through all of this. But no, I don't think they, they've called it too soon. Like this, it's, uh, you know, there are still millions of tickets that have been sold to the, to the Japanese public mm-hmm. who are going to be coming. Um, but there's 1 million people from around the world who, like you're saying, maybe it could happen. But those 1 million people need to be booking flights and hotels. And it's just too complicated and too risky for everyone. And if we think about how the pandemic has played out around the world, it's not in the same state everywhere, right? Like where when we have been um, out of lockdown and in uh, yellow and depending on where you are in the country in green zones, other countries have been in red and lockdown. And when we go into red, gray, lockdown, you know, spin the wheel, depending on where you're going to be, um, you know, other places have been very open. So you can't look at our own community and say it's going to be fine. And so logistically, it's the most fair and the safest thing to do um, for the Japanese people who are paying for these games, right, uh, to say no international spectators. Uh, yeah, and that price just went up considerably, obviously, because uh, I, I, th- I think the number I saw for this money was about $800 million in income uh, from ticket sales. That th- they were, that's what they were hoping for. Well, that's not going to happen now. Well, you can imagine there's still going to be some tickets that they'll be able to sell uh, of those international tickets. Um, the thing about, like, a year, honestly, a year and a half ago, the two big issues I was dealing with uh, for the, as, part, as chef de mission, one of my roles is I'm on the issues management team. And our big things, uh, because there were no big things, um, was it was going to be very hot, a very hot games, and that tickets uh, were very hard to come by because of incredible demand from the, the Japanese public. Um, so that that remains the same. And mostly people just wanted to save it. And if you, if I take this even further, for most people around the world, the games have always been a um, uh, made-for-TV event. Right. So yeah. as I say to the athletes and my advice to the athletes and it, every game, it is this to the athletes, the athletes need to focus on the Olympic competition. And I, uh, Tokyo is going to be my 10th games. And I've been to a lot of gong show games. Right. When we went to Athens, they weren't finished in Greece. They weren't finished when the athletes were arriving, getting everything together. I remember it was mid games that they were still putting out grass in some areas. Um, you know, Atlanta had its own challenges for how it did everything. But at every game, it's the same in Rio. At every game, regardless of the organization, the field of play is amazing. And that's what we're getting our athletes to focus on. And that's what people at home are going to watch. You are still going to see incredible things happening. We have athletes who, in isolation, are still achieving personal bests um, at this point in time. One of our swimmers, um, just uh, Maggie McNeil just was the first woman ever to swim under 49 seconds for the 100 yards in a, a NCAA competition. Um, you know, like there, there's incredible training going on in less than incredible in, uh, like training environments. And so I think when the athletes get together, what we're going to see on TV and what we're asking Canadians to cheer for and to cheer from home and to get engaged, whether it's social media or just yelling you know, across the, the two meters expanse to your neighbor, like, did you see that? That's amazing. And for kids across the country going, I want to try that sport. I want to run. I want to jump. I want to do gymnastics. I want to 
climb. I want to do skateboarding. You know, there's, there's going to be so many incredible things this summer. How are the athletes holding up? I'm glad you brought that up because I've always wondered about oftentimes there will be, notwithstanding the fact that nobody wants to see that happen, there will be politics involved in these games. Well, we're seeing it already happen with the Beijing situation, you know, because of uh, what's going on in China these days. Uh, There's a call for some athletes, you know, to not send a contingent. This is different, though. This is a pandemic. This is not politics. Uh, And it's something none of us in our lifetime have ever experienced, Marty. How are they holding up and how are they handling it? Yeah, well, our, our Canadian athletes, our members of Team Canada, are Canadians first. And so, like everyone, their resilience is being tested this year. And we are um, tired and exhausted um, and trying to figure out how to make do and make the best um, in, in very challenging times. Our, our two priorities as a team are the health and safety of, uh, of our people and our communities and high performance. Um, and so one of the ways we keep our mental health is by focusing on what we can do. Um, and athletes have been trying to figure out if they can't run, um, on a proper track surface, they're doing their best to run somewhere. If they can't swim in a proper 50 meter pool, they're doing their best to swim somewhere. Uh, you know, we have a sport climber, uh, Sean McCall. He, the number of workouts I've watched him do on Instagram, um, hanging from like little, like one was like a five millimeter hold in his house, right? They're just, they're figuring it out. So they are tired um, of like every Canadian trying to figure out how to be resilient. Uh, you know, they, they say that the Olympic motto is Sidious Altius Fortius. And I I'm adding adaptius, you know, that like everyone's having to adapt and be resilient. Um, and, and that's exhausting. But at the same time, in the same way, and, and vaccines are part of our story, but in the same way that vaccines have uh, put a light at the end of the tunnel for everyone, uh, when Tokyo started coming out, the Tokyo 2020 Organizing Committee started coming out with what they call playbooks. They're the, this is how it's going to happen books. Like, this is how travel to Japan is going to work. This is how... Um, moving around within the Olympic nodes is going to keep us safe, is going to keep the people of Tokyo safe. Uh, these are how it's going to happen, books. And that was the light at the end of our tunnel. Um, we have dates going on. There are competitions, although challenging, there are competitions happening for qualification. That is our hardest thing right now is uh, finalizing our qualifications for the athletes. Um, but they just want to believe in the sport they're doing and the potential that it's going to be gosh a breath of fresh air for everyone who's been struggling for so long right it's it's like anyone who just got um out for a walk on a sunny day uh it felt amazing and we kind of think that uh olympic sport happening 205 nations gathering and and trying to do um something that's more about high performance and big dreams uh hopefully that's going to be like a walk on a beautiful uh spring day what about the, the athlete safety within the village I, one of the things of course that we've learned and we saw this with the nba and of course the, uh, the nhl last season uh, is creating a bubble to try to maintain that the, the, you know people from the outside don't come in and people from inside don't get out uh, that, they pretty much do that during the Olympics anyway, don't they, with the Athletes' Village? I mean, you know, it's not restrictive, but, I mean, everybody is there. But one of the things I wanted to ask you about in that regard, though, Marty, is there is no mandatory requirement for vaccinations with the athletes right now who are coming in there. 
is is that a concern to to your team, to your athletes? No, um, but what was different? So uh, five years ago at the Olympics, um, athletes are coming and going. The the Olympic, well, well, the journalists can't come into the Olympic Village. Um, athletes have been very um, good tourists, you know, in in mm-hmm. a very professional sense. But athletes wander around a, a host city and they. Um, you know, we'll have a coffee and, and depending on where they are in their competition schedule, they'll meet with friends and family, which they're not going to do anymore. And this is one yeah. of the other things, right? That takes away that, that, um, oh, <laughs> that, 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 that temptation. Um, so one of the things that in that playbook I was talking about says that athletes, if you're an accredited athlete, when you arrive at the airport, you will go directly into the Olympic Village. You will take Olympic transport. You will not take uh, public transport or the bullet trains to get around um, Tokyo or Japan. Uh, so you will take Olympic transport into the Olympic Village, Olympic transport from the Olympic Village to your competition. There are uh, restricted arrival times. So now you can only arrive five days before training at your venue and you will be leaving uh, within 48 hours after your competition. So there's there's not going to be that situation where you uh, finish as an athlete and then you get to um, go to the bars and the restaurants and celebrate in the host city. Uh, athletes will be coming home. I will say we do not have exemptions. Canadian athletes do not have exemptions um, from hotels or travel quarantines from coming home to Canada. Um so don't go thinking we're just going to leave Tokyo and come home and, and at this point party in Canada. We don't know what that's going to look like in um, July and August. Uh, but it, it is, we will be in nodes and we will be very much, um, it's, it's not a bubble per se because we are going from Olympic Village, taking our own transportation into competition. But there, there isn't that sort of interaction we're going to have mm-hmm. with the 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 residents in the, of, of Japan. I'll say as, as chef, I'm going to be in Tokyo for probably um, at least four weeks. And uh, I'm going to be eating all my meals in the village. I, I, I'm, you know, I sort of joke that I'm not going to be going out for sushi uh, once <laughs> in, the, in, the, in, in Tokyo. And having done site visits and been to Tokyo in the past, that's, that's going to be hard, hard, but oh, I would sure. rather have that restriction um, and be able to support team Canada than, uh, you know, to have some pretty, pretty amazing uh, sushi. Uh, what about the volunteers? I mean, over the, the past Olympics, we've actually talked to a number of Canadians who volunteer. I mean, they can serve as interpreters, as, as uh, liaisons mm-hmm. for some of the, the, the teams, etc., cetera, uh, almost as tour guides, I guess. And, and it, it's something that's very fulfilling for all of them. Are they included uh, in this number here who are no longer allowed to be there, or are there going to be some allowances for that? Bill, we had already um, cut back the number of people who are going to be around team Canada athletes. Like, you know, so if you bring up the, the NBA and the NHL um, examples, you know, what we need to do is uh, reduce and restrict the number of um, uh, close contact opportunities to our Canadian athletes. So we have really pared down even on the mission team for team Canada, who's going to be there. Uh, The number of volunteers around us, we will restrict that. And, um, you know, the, the volunteers, and, and there is an operational sense of how, who needs to be around us. Um, but again, that's, that's going to be how these people, um, that how, how close they get to our athletes and our coaches and our field of play 
um, members of Team Canada uh, is, is going to be dramatically different from what it was before. And one of the, the pieces of um, advice we're giving to our athletes, uh, particularly our veterans who have a sense, you know, they were in Rio or they were in London before that, is don't use that as the bar to compare to. These are going to be a very unique game. Um, you know, like I said before, it's the, the key will be to focus on the Olympic uh, competition of the game, the Olympic sport and not necessarily what everyone had come to know as uh, the Olympic ceremony, like the, the Olympic, like there's the Olympic Games and there's the Olympic competition. Mm-hmm. And Team Canada is going very focused on the Olympic competition. Uh, by the way, we should just mention, for those who are just catching up with us here, the, the ruling here is that uh, no outsiders, if you bought tickets for the Olympics, uh, you're not allowed to be there. That's, that's just the way it is. I can, I can understand the logic in, in making the announcement now so people don't book flights or try to get their money back from the airlines, I guess, if they if they have done that. Uh, but it's not as if our athletes are going to be playing in front of empty stadiums, as you know. Mike. I, the last number I saw, there's about 5 million tickets have been sold to, to Japanese citizens for this, too. So the, yeah. the, there will be a... a a, a crowd there will be a, a population in the stands yep and and that, that's right bill and even last year they were um you know last summer they were uh in Jap- in japan they were experiment experimenting that's a terrible word to use they were testing how to um let people into the stands you know we know here in canada it's not like you're gonna pack a stadium to full capacity i i don't know what sort of restrictions they're going to have um, you know, whether it's going to be uh, like how they're going to um, allow spectators for outdoor venues, how they're going to allow spectators for indoor venues, uh, you know, how close down to the field of play that's going to be. You know, all of this is going to be interesting. Like they, they've said uh, right now the, the the torch run, the torch relay is going on. And they've said, well, we would like people to come to the street. Um, you know, they, they have said, mm-hmm. here's a crazy one, that spectators aren't allowed to cheer or yell. So there's going to be a lot of polite clapping going on, which <laughs> part of me is like, I, I might need to take a drum. I'm a, I'm a big, loud, boisterous cheerer. I have a, <laughs> uh, when my voice is gone, I, I have a, a like professional grade whistle, like, you know, like put two fingers together and puck oh, yeah. kind of thing. Um, I can be very loud when I need to be, but I'm going to have to um, experiment with how to uh, cheer for Team Canada without those sort of cheers. Uh, I, I watched the video of the announcement uh, when the uh, officials were doing this on Saturday, too, and I'm sure you've seen it, too, Marnie. Uh, and, of course, right in the middle of it, there's an earthquake, uh, a 7.0 magnitude, according yeah. to the Geological Survey. There's a little party that just said, well, also we're going to have to deal with, for heaven's sakes, I mean, with all this other stuff. I mean, it's it's it doesn't happen. They are in the ring of fire, and I guess it was just like, you know, there's one more thing that we have to concern ourselves with. But hopefully that, that's gone, and that's not going to be a factor in this, too. Uh, it's... Uh, <laughs> But it can't be gone. I, I, I think you're wrapping up, but it can't be gone. And, and that's the thing, Bill, is we have to remember all the issues that existed before the pandemic still exist. And that's like yeah. everyone, right? Every All the all the trials and tribulations of, of normal life still exist within the pandemic. And, you know, so now we go back to heat is a real issue. Ticketing is easy, different sort of issue. And uh, preparing our team, um, every athlete going into the Olympic Village was going to be given sort of earthquake awareness. What do you do when you drive around in in Tokyo? There are very large signs that that indicate where, um, you know, evacuation zones are and that sort of thing. It's just a very real thing that is part of the the daily life in Tokyo. So, you know, now uh, in getting through the pandemic, we get back to all real world issues. 
such as they are that we're dealing with here. It's uh, t- going to be challenging, to say the least. I wish you luck, uh, and certainly I wish our team luck, too, with this. It's a very different Olympic Games, but hopefully it's going to be a, a lifetime experience for an awful lot of our athletes, and hopefully a successful one, too. Marnie, thanks for spending some time with us today. I really do appreciate it. Uh, thanks for the nice chat, Bill. Take care. Marnie McBean, of course, Team Canada's uh, Tokyo 2020 chef de mission, and, of course, herself a three-time gold medalist in the Olympic Games. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. The Federal Conservative Party held a virtual policy convention this past weekend. Before the convention, the Conservative leader Aaron O'Toole had uh, asked his, his fellow party members to maybe be a little more flexible, to try to attract people to the Conservative Party that maybe haven't voted Conservative in the past. Uh, and there were a number of very controversial issues on the agenda. Uh, did it work? Well, let's uh, get the report from Emily Javesky. 54% of voting delegates at the party's virtual convention voted against the motion. The contentious motion also stressed the need for highly polluting businesses to take more responsibility to reduce emissions. It's a blow to Conservative leader Aaron O'Toole, who told the party's grassroots that an ambitious climate change agenda is a must if the party hopes to win power. The motion on climate change had the fiercest opposition from western provinces, with delegates from New Brunswick and Quebec showing the most support. Emily Javesky, The Canadian Press. Uh, there were a couple of other things up there, too, that really caught people's attention as well. And, uh, to dissect the whole thing and talk about the implications, uh, pleased to welcome to the program Daniel Bayland, who is a James McGill Professor of Political Science and the Director of the McGill Institute for the Study of Canada with McGill University. Uh, Professor, thank you so much for the time. Glad you could be with us today. Good morning. Thanks for the invitation. I, I, I got the sense, uh, as we were listening to Mr. O'Toole before the uh, policy convention, uh, that he was trying to drag some of his members kicking and screaming into the 21st century. It uh, doesn't look like he had much success. No, I think it was a huge failure, especially on on climate change. Of course, some people say, well, we voted some members, conservative members, say we voted against it, not because we don't think that there is such a thing as climate change, but because we didn't like the wording. But still, the effect is the same. It looks very bad for uh, Erin O'Toole. Uh, and, and something that the, um, the journalist uh, mentioned, uh, that, you know, just the report that you, uh, you played just before I, I came in, you know, um, there was, there is regional division within the party and it's been the, it's still the old, I think, PC side versus the reform side, so western side. And, and, you know, for many years we have talked about divisions over abortion, before that LGBT rights. But, but now you can see that it's clearly, clearly a regional cleavage over uh, climate change and environmental policy. Uh, Quebec voted um, 70%, uh, uh, the members in Quebec, 70% in favor of the motion. The motion originated from a riding in Quebec. 72% uh, of members in New Brunswick voted in favor of it. All the Atlantic provinces actually supported it. In BC, it was almost uh, equal, 50-50. It was 48 in favor, 52 against. But in Saskatchewan, 73% of the members voted against it. So you can see major from 72% of support in New Brunswick to 73% opposition, no in, in Saskatchewan. Uh, this shows you major division exists within the country in general, but also especially within the Conservative Party over climate change, and that's not good news. It, it seems to me as well, Professor, this is a gap that can't be bridged at this stage. I mean, they just seem to be entrenched in that position, and they don't want to hear anything other than that. Yes. 
and that's a problem for a Renault tool. When I say it's bad, it's bad for the, the party uh, to be so divided over this issue and the outcome of uh, defeating a motion like this, which is very general in nature. Uh, and I think it, 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 it undermines the leadership of a Renault tool in a way, which is already, you know, it's been, he's been struggling since the beginning. Uh, uh, because they re- people are really entrenched in their position, uh, positions, as you said, and and it's especially hard in uh, in Alberta and Saskatchewan, and and um, and if there is people just don't want to even talk about climate change, when uh, people in British Columbia, in uh, in Quebec, in Ontario, Atlantic Canada, they they think it's an important issue. Um, then I think it's uh, electorally just gives ammunition to uh, the Liberals in Quebec, to the Bloc, to the NDP, and of course to the Green Party. <laughs> so um, I think it's it's bad if we have elections in the you know in the in, in later this spring or in the fall. You can be sure that the Bloc, the Liberals, the NDP, and the Green will go back to this motion that was defeated and say, "Hey, look, a majority of conservatives don't even want to to recognize that there is something like climate change." Um, and, and and, and that, that is, you know, for someone, Irene O'Toole wants to move towards the center, but having a, a, an actual, uh, be, being serious about climate change is one, one major way to actually move towards the center, and, and that failed really badly, uh, uh, um, you know, uh, last week. Um, uh, and, and I can't believe that they let this motion go to the floor if they actually, they were not sure that it will pass, because... That, that makes the party and the leader, uh, I think, look bad. Uh, and, you know, it's 54% of conservatives who voted against the motion. But if you had asked this question to Canadians in general, not members of the Conservative Party, but other Canadians, I think you would have a, a very different outcome with the majority, strong majority of Canadians probably supporting that motion. Um, so I think that there is a gap between the party and where the average voter is, especially in, uh, in um, I would say, uh, 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 east of uh, of Manitoba. Well, we saw that in the last federal election, didn't we, Professor? I mean, the, the polling that was done by two or three different uh, polling institutions uh, among Canadian voters, uh, the environment was the second most important issue. Obviously, the economy was number one. And this is pre-pandemic, of course, but but that, that tells you how how important it is and how much it's risen in the in the consciousness of Canadians. Uh, apparently, the Canadians didn't, or the, the Conservatives didn't see that email. Yeah, no, I think I think Erin O'Toole knows that, and the conservative officials know it. But there is still a lot of resistance from regular, uh, you know, party members, uh, especially out west. And and I think this is a big liability uh, uh, when we approach the next federal elections. It's true, next federal elections they will be about COVID and maybe healthcare. Uh, Spending, long-term care, and of course about the economy, <laughs> but uh, the environment will remain a major issue moving forward. And I think there is increased pressure on Canada to act because of the Biden administration in the U.S. Um, and um, and so this is really like shooting yourself in the foot from a, an electoral standpoint. It's very bad for the conservatives. Well, as uh, one of my friends, uh, one of my political pundit friends said over the weekend after they saw the result of this, they said, you know, when they merged the alliance and the, and the PCs, they took the word progressive out of the name of the party. He says, now we know why. Uh, it's, it's really a big step backwards for them, isn't it? Yeah, well, you know, is that it just makes it clear, despite all the talk by the, the new leader, Irene O'Toole, I mean, he's been there 
you know, only since last summer, but he, 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 he tries to move the party towards the center. But uh, I think regional alienation out west, uh, western alienation is playing a role here. But, you know, the fact that 58% of the members in Ontario voted against the motion uh, tells you also that, you know, conservative members are not in sync with certainly what people in the Toronto area, the GTA, will think on average, right? I mean, mm-hmm. um, so there is a gap between, you know, party members and uh, the median voter or the general public. And that is a problem for the party moving forward because it's the party that, you know, uh, uh, puts forward policies. But if members uh, uh, have uh, opposed certain policies that are popular with the public, uh, it's a problem. And another problem, it's not about this motion per se, but the conservatives still don't have a, an alternative to uh, the, the, the carbon tax uh, uh, regime that the liberals created. So, they, you know, Erin O'Toole say, says, oh, the plan will come later and later. They're always, they're always postponing, and they are postponing because there is no strong support among their membership uh, uh, in terms of having a plan that's realistic and that most voters could see as serious about climate change. And I think that's, um, it's, you know, in the past, uh, abortion, uh, LGBT issues were a problem in terms of mainstreaming the party and the party being, a, you know, following, um, I would say, public opinion, right? Not being too far behind public opinion. But now climate change, I think, has become by far their biggest challenge. And um, the convention this weekend, I think the the, both Erin O'Toole and the party failed to, uh, uh, to make a stance that, um, that will actually help them uh, uh, at the next, uh, during the next federal campaign. I, I guess maybe they don't have a perspective on history, uh, Professor, because uh, as we know, uh, the whole concept of carbon pricing is actually a conservative point of view. It was developed uh, through conservative think tanks, and Preston Manning and others in, in the conservative movement uh, were advocates. Now, now, Preston Manning doesn't like the way that this government's doing it, but he has he doesn't have a problem with the concept. But all of a sudden, uh, it's it's become the devil incarnate to the conservative party. It's their rallying cry, no carbon tax. Yeah, I think it's because it's, it comes from Justin Trudeau and the Liberals, um, and so it's perceived as. Yeah, and it's it's you see that in in the U.S. too, in some some elements of Obamacare, you know, where actually conservative ideas, pro market ideas, mm-hmm. and the Republicans started to trash trash these ideas because they were associated with Obama. Uh, and so in, in Canada, you see the same thing. If the Liberals take over and tweak a conservative idea, uh, then it becomes bad because it's a, it, it becomes a liberal uh, policy, right? So I think a lot of it is about partisanship and partisan identity. Um, and, and there is a visceral, I think, um, rejection of everything that is tied to the liberal government in a way or another in some parts of the country and among a significant portion of the conservative base and that is a problem for the conservatives moving forward because some of these ideas, some of these policies are actually quite popular among Canadians. Now, on uh, emergency measures, um, uh, you know, in the aftermath of COVID-19, conservatives did not oppose CRB and other policies, at least yeah. at first, because they were hugely popular. Uh, but there is a tendency among, cons- among conservatives to criticize any policy that has the liberal label attached to it, even when these policies are popular. And that will have or could have a price at the next federal elections because uh, when a policy is popular, you rally behind it. You say, I mean, I tweak it a bit, but you explain how you will tweak it. And the liberals, uh, the, the, the conservatives have failed to do that regarding carbon pricing. And as you said, it's a conservative pro-market idea. So just tell us how different you will do it and, and come with a very clear plan with uh, 
numbers, and then people will will you know be able to assess it. But right now, it's just uh, it's so vague. And and how could people have confidence in a leader saying he will tackle climate change if fifty two fifty four percent of his members at a convention are voting against a motion stating that climate change is real? I, I, there was also an, a motion here about assisted uh, medical assisted uh, su- dying too. Uh, they voted once again to continue to oppose uh, the whole idea of medical assistance and dying in principle. The Supreme Court's already ruled on that, Professor. Six years ago, they said that that stand that Conservative Party is taking is unconstitutional. Yet they still cling to it. Yes, yes, and you saw that in the past with other issues like LGBT uh, rights mm-hmm. and. Uh, uh, same-sex marriage, and they oppose it for a long time until it was impossible for them to oppose it <laughs> anymore because the Canadian public had, had moved on the issue and, and, and opposition to it in, in terms of the public uh, declined quite rapidly over time, and they had to adjust. So conservatives, uh, you know, they, they adjust, but sometimes they take too much time to adjust. And, and here I think it's, uh, but, you know, uh, religious groups are, are quite powerful within the party. They don't rule the party. They are not the majority uh, uh, within the party, but they, they are a major wing of the conservative movement, especially out west and, uh, and in rural areas. And, and, and that is reflected in some of the motions that uh, were passed uh, um, on uh, or votes that were uh, made on uh, this weekend. The, the irony here, though, is that Mr. O'Toole's plea to the party was to, to modify some of these stands to try to attract more people. I mean, these motions and the way they did them over the weekend, Professor, certainly play, as you mentioned, to that, that hardcore right side of the conservative base. But the last couple of elections uh, have proven that that's not enough to win government, uh, which is why O'Toole is saying, look, we need to attract more people. Uh, and But yet... They, they basically are saying, no, this is where we are right now. So, uh, I mean, is, is there a concern here that they're going to have to suffer the consequences of that when they go to the polls again? As you say, on, on these two key issues especially, uh, the country's moved on. The party hasn't. Yes, exactly. And, and, and it's a big problem for them moving forward. You see the liberals are in, in, ahead in the polls, and I, I, the, vote that, uh, the votes that took place uh, this, this weekend uh, as part of the Conservative Convention, I think that will just boost the, 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 the liberals in the polls. Certainly it will, it will not uh, hurt them, uh, and, and it could hurt the Conservatives. I, I think it's, uh, it's very unfortunate for, for Erin O'Toole because he's trying really hard, but if the party is not behind you, and it's clear, it's so obvious what he said at the convention and what people voted on regarding climate change and the outcome of that vote, it's a clear contradiction. Right. And mm-hmm. people don't like that. They think about the party and they say, well, the leader says something, but the base of the party says something else. So who, who should I believe? Troubling times, interesting times, too. And we'll see, uh, certainly, in the, I guess, in the upcoming polling, just how the Canadians will respond to this. Uh, Professor, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you. Have a wonderful day. You too. Professor Danielle Balon, of course, from McGill University. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.